in a galaxy known as the Milky Way in a time not too far from now, lived a family of five on a farm just outside the city limits. They were an industrious lot, keeping mostly to themselves. The mom and dad worked long and hard farming hours, all the while making sure to instill these and other exacting values into their offspring. Not too much noteworthy had happened since they'd moved to this area just two years and a bit ago, until the day one of the children lost something of value. A coin. It felt like a bear claw, but it was only a hand that knocked mine out of the way. Now it was blocking my line of sight as the owner's chubby knobbed fingers reached for the shiny circle of light on the scarred floorboards. Mere inches from my face, the paw swooped by, which caused a non-stop series of cascading chills to ripple through me in waves like the roller coaster ride at Sundusky Park. I hated always being afraid. Worse was when others saw that I was. So I tried to hold the shakiness tight and inside, in hopes that the trembling wouldn't be noticed under my striped tee. My family wasn't exactly new to this township. Having moved here for a better opportunity two years prior, but unlike my siblings, I continued to feel like the odd one, always on the outs, always the last to be picked for kickball. I loved my ma and pa, and my brothers made home life bearable. But unlike the lie I told them every single day, so as not to cause worry, I hadn't exactly made a lot of friends. Still, with older brothers, I always had a supply of army men and toy trucks. It also meant a steady supply of clean, neatly pressed and patched jeans, and of course, teas. Unfortunately, they hadn't also supplied me with a set of courage jeans. So there I was, coming up against him with a capital H. He wasn't a fit, agile fighting machine like my army men by any means. He was a mold from a different model kit. Even at our age, he was a marvel. His chest sort of popped out like Asterion, the minotaur whose mom had been human, but his dad had been a bull. I spent a fair amount of time on the floor of the library stacks where I'd come across a picture book on Greek mythology just last week. The images had stuck, which is probably why Asterion came to mind now, while I mutely stood by watching Mitchell McCready, of the capital H, laying claim to all of that brilliance as he scooped up the coin from where it lay at rest on the splintered-ridden, mildew-stained classroom floor. It was my quarter. I shoved my hands in my left trouser pocket where it had been safely housed only moments before, only to find the hole that had finally given way to the threadbareness of the pocket's linen fabric. It was obvious it had escaped from out of the hole in my pocket. I'd worked so hard at scrubbing out old Mrs. Phillips' bathroom. It had taken most of my Saturday. Everything in that room was so dingy from want of an overdue washing. By the time I'd finished, 
I realized gray had become the natural state of everything in that small square of a box, including the walls. But, oh, I had tried. Trying to whiten up the rim of the clawfoot tub had nearly taken my life, or at least caused me to pass out. No one had told me the noxious effects of combining products like ammonia and bleach. I had rubbed, scrubbed, and wiped until the rims round my fingernails had started to turn pinkish and burn. Finally, Mrs. Phillips, maybe realizing the futility of the enterprise, had told me I could give it a rest. After plopping two quarters into my waterlogged palm, I thanked her and had skedaddled home where I deposited one of the quarters in Ma's rainy day jar and the other I sequestered away until I could make it to Reader's Drug and Mercantile after school on Monday. There was something there I'd been paying on for weeks now, something I'd never had brand new before, something that wasn't a hand-me-down, something quite nice, quite nice. And now my coin, my coin, rested in Mitchell McCready's grubby fist. I wanted it back. I saw his river sludge-colored eyes slyly flick round to see if anyone had clocked his action. The thief. His eyes grazed over mine, nearly not seeing, but then they stopped, came back, held. <laughs> he knew it. He knew it, and I knew that he knew. We both knew it was mine. I could feel him trying to pull his eyes away from my glare, to look anywhere but at me. Strange, it was as if my gaze held a power like that Medusa creature, also from Greek mythology. True, Mitch didn't turn to stone, but he also did not, nor could not, turn away. Slowly my fingers straightened, and my palm flattened. All the while my arm floated up and up and up until it rested right between us, hovering. I waited. Mitch managed to pull away from my hard stare, but only to drop his lids down a tick. He took in my hand. His Adam's apple bobbed as he couldn't help but gulp. But then, my hand... Well, it wobbled. It was the tiniest of tremors, but it was unmistakable. Jeepers. Mitch's right eye narrowed. At the same time, his right cheek creased as his mouth snaked up into its customary smirk position. I squinted my eyes again, seeking his gaze, hoping to reclaim the snippet of power that I had felt just a moment before. But it was not to be. It was gone disappeared, evaporated, never was. The snicker only deepened as he took his seat, just one up from mine and across the aisle. His head, which topped his bulk, was unimpressive in its normalness. A swoosh of teeny tiny dots, varying in size and intensity, crossed his muscular nape, peppering his almond-toned skin like twinkling stars when sprayed across the blackness of a moonless night sky. Those freckles pretty much covered the back of his neck, 
before disappearing into his thick brush of copper-toned locks. I continued to stare at them in all of my unabashed shame, wondering what to do when I realized he was scratching the back of his neck with one finger, the middle one. I gasped and looked toward the front of the room where Mrs. Cardy began reciting division tables. Five goes into twenty-five five times, and that was that. Only it wasn't, because as I opened my primer, I found myself locked eyeball to eyeball with Rebecca, Becky Johnson, who collected friends as easily as I collected multicolored field stones. Dimple-cheeked, bambi-brown-eyed Becky, whose two thick braids were so long they nearly reached her seat. I suspected she was secretly proud of them. They were kept from unraveling by matching satin ribbons tied to their ends, a different color for every day of the week. I'd figured that out. Becky, seated directly across the aisle, having seen everything, she was looking at me in that way. The way you look at somebody when they're going to go from fifth grade to sixth and beyond to grow up, eventually graduate from high school, and not have anything said about them anywhere, especially not in any yearbook, except honor roll student and maybe chess club. There might be a glee club or marching band shots, but even those were iffy. Definitely nothing about sports. My brothers were all over the sports sections of their yearbooks. They had nothing to worry about. Why hadn't some of their manliness seeped into me, I often questioned. Why wasn't I more Perseus-like, out slaying dragons and chopping off heads of sea monsters? Becky Johnson's look all but said that I was destined for a blank. May as well go to sleep and never get up. I'd been avoiding that kind of look since kindergarten. My destiny. The yearbook was a pre-map for the rest of your life. Everyone knew it. After school, kids of all stripes, size, and gender poured out of the red-bricked building, spreading in all directions, north, south, east, and west. It brought to my mind Medusa again and her hair of wriggling serpents wriggling about. To my way of thinking, the serpents weren't really part of the mad woman. They were attempting to escape the mad woman and had each one turned crazy themselves when their predicament became clear. They were stuck with what they had. You leave the party with them that bring you, to quote my mother. Us kids, we would not become crazy because we could escape the four walls of our classroom structure eventually for good if we stuck to our studies and brought home report cards to be proud of, right up until passing from 5th to 6th to 7th. After that, it was high school, and, well, my mind was blank on that subject, just like the pages in my yearbook. But today, as we bounded out of the building, each to our own homesteads, our energy seemed to triple. I headed westerly towards Diagno and the crossroads, He, the freckled-faced, meaty-boned mope, was slightly up ahead, 
flipping the coin up and down, up and down. I kept hoping he would drop it, that it would slip right through his fingers, but that was wishful thinking. He was the catcher on the Pee Wee Varsity. It was those piglet-sized digits of his that accounted for his success. Mitchell McCready would have lots of things written about him in the school yearbook. Copley Road, Mitchell's turnoff. I would head on up to Fenton Street till I reached Diagonal, and I would never see my quarter again. Unless my legs started moving faster. Before I knew it, I was closing the gap, and just as if they had a mind of their own, same as my hand had done earlier that day, and before you could say Ali Ali Oxen Free, my legs had caught up to him, and I called out, Hey, you, Mitchell. This was action unexpected, even by me, this calling out. And for a brief second, I said nothing else, as if I hadn't meant to call him out. And in truth, it was as if someone or something else had taken over my being, had given voice to my thoughts, but no one was moving. They all waited, and I realized that it didn't matter if something had taken over my body. It was my voice that had cut through the air. It was me. I was calling out Mitch McCready. As Mitchell stood there, I sensed that he had been expecting this, had been wishing, hoping, relying on my stopping him. I could see he wanted to pulverize my already vulnerable self-esteem in front of the entire fifth grade. Flaunting his thievery, he had tossed the coin up and down, knowing I was trailing behind him in order to goad me into this challenge. And it was too late to stop now. Foolishly, as if I hadn't already been humiliated enough, I had stepped knee-deep into this cow pad, and it was too late to step back now. Mitch turned around, planning himself, legs spread apart like an upside-down V. He was already sneering. What do you want, Avers? Using my last name was, I suspected, his way of looking down on me even more. I want my quarterback. I hadn't hesitated. Another surprise. You want it? I do. You can have it, he said, pleasant enough. I wasn't looking, but I could sense that all the kids' heads were flipping back and forth from Mitch to me as we spoke riveted by this unexpected after-school drama following our every word. Take it. That last wasn't said so pleasantly. If words can have sneers attached to them, well, those words did. Mitch held it up then, slanting it just so, until it caught the afternoon sunlight. He played with the angle until the beam of light being cast off by the sun's rays, struck the surface of my glasses, briefly blinding me. Wincing, my head jerked to the side, and I caught a glimpse of Becky, who had just walked up to the edge of the onlookers. I was so gosh darn mad. I wanted to sock him, to run right up, knock him down, smash his face in the dirt, and take back my coin. Guessing at my thoughts, which must have been playing across my face, Mitchell snickered. He glanced over my shoulder at her. Hey, Becky, he said to her. Becky flushed slightly but said nothing. My gaze dropped downward and I found myself staring at my sneaker, the toe of which was starting to wear. I dug down into the soil with the tip of it, hoping the color of the dirt would hide the thinness of the cloth. 
By the time I looked back up, Mitchell had turned his attention to me. An odd look shone in his eyes as he casually resumed the tossing of the coin. So smooth. He had the grace and movement of a true athlete. He tossed the coin again. A little higher. Flip. Catch. The crowd around us had mushroomed as the rest of the kids on their way home stopped to see what the goings-on were. He readied himself for a third toss. If you miss it, it's mine. What? Mitchell paused. Something was happening. Make me say things again. Things that had been barely recognized thoughts. What do you mean? If you miss catching it, somehow, I said to the catcher. If it hits the ground. If you drop it. If you... I never miss. I took a step forward. Not sure if I were acting out of bravery or cowardice. Never. Performing for our now-swelled audience, he beamed at our classmates. His cocky glance found Becky once more. Never. If you miss it, I repeated, it's mine. I thought I saw something. There. A tiny flicker pulsating behind his lids. Still, it was so slight I couldn't be sure I wasn't imagining it. Without waiting to find out, I boldly stepped forward all the way into his space. The top of my head barely made it to the tops of his massive shoulders. I tried to think tall and felt my neck stretching upward and my narrowish shoulder span growing broader. Toss it again, I growled. Back off, Avers, he returned the growl. His was deeper. You're blocking my space. If you miss, I get it back. Yeah, okay, just step off. I get it back. Power poured out of me through my voice, that foreign feeling that was becoming oddly familiar and somewhat comforting. My whole being felt bigger, bolder as a sense of confidence took hold and began to travel into and through every crevice of my body. Mitchell must have sensed it because he said, Yeah, okay, you get the quarter. I took a step back. It's your third throw, MacReady, I said, returning his insult from moments ago by using his surname. So? His bravado seemed just that, even to the crowd who was beginning to show signs of restlessness. So, third times what? His tone was derisive. The strike, I was going to say the strike. Mitch pitched the coin upwards. He'd thrown it high. We all let out an involuntary gasp when it left his fingers. He was so deft with his hands. The moment stretched longer than what was in reality a mere second or two. It seemed endless as we breathlessly observed that shiny orb of moving energy soar up, up, and away before gravity caused it to pause, hold, and return its descent in what seemed like half the time it took to climb. Mitch was ready, keeping his eye on the bright dot as it returned to our earthly plane. His legs spread even wider, his feet planted even firmer. He reached up, smooth as could be. He thought he was going to catch it. His arm extended upward. His massive fingers opened into what seemed to me his own personal catcher's mitt of a hand. The coin was approaching. I had to act quickly. I stepped forward one more time, right into his body space. So close was I, I knew he could feel me, and I knew I was throwing him off balance. My own arm 
tanned from hours of playing in the fields behind our house, was still pale in comparison to Mitch's. But it snaked forward, and just as the coin would have plopped into his palm, I reached up to grasp it. I reached, and I reached, and I reached. Stars. I was actually seeing stars, and my bum tingled from where it had come into contact with the ground. I sat up to see the backs of our classmates and the rest of the school kids growing smaller as they, excitement over, pressed onward towards their afternoon activities or their houses. I looked down at my still, tightly balled hand. I opened it. Empty. What? I was a bit dazed and more than a little confused. McCready shoved you backwards, out of the way, Becky said as she sounded apologetic. You fell down, hit your head. She was the only one who had stayed behind. She reached out her hand. I looked at it as if it were a foreign object until she wriggled her fingers. How many fingers do you see? She asked. Oh, I said, startled, as I realized she was offering me a hand up. I took it, and she held firm as I hoisted my slim form up. Thanks, I said, dusting myself off. When I'd done the best I could do with regard to that, I turned to face her. MacReady caught the quarter, I asked. Yeah, MacReady caught the quarter. He never misses that guy. Yeah, she said. But did you know that he cheats on all his tests? Really? Yeah. He's so tall he can see over Melissa's shoulder, and he copies all her answers. I didn't know. We shared a small smile. Silently, we turned towards Diagno. I'd never walked home with anyone before and was appreciative, but also mystified by this new experience. When we got to Becky's turn off, I paused. I thought it only fitting to acknowledge her before she turned to her regular life, Tomorrow, after all, was a new day, and I knew she'd be returning to her familiar routine and friends. Why'd you want the quarter so badly? I was embarrassed to admit it, but for some reason I told her the truth. There's something in the window at Reader's. The yellow dress? Becky exclaimed, and I could tell that her excitement was truly felt. I nodded. Mr. Reader is holding it for me. Wow, she said, you're the one. I asked about that dress last week, and Mr. Reader said he was holding it for someone special. A bright smile broke across her face. I guess that'd be you. I looked down at my scuffed tennies. Yeah, guess so. I didn't think you liked dresses, she said then. I've never seen you in one. I do have a dress that I wear on Sundays, but for school I wear my brother's hand-me-downs mostly. Waste not, want not, my mom says. Hey, do you want to go look at the dress now? I mean, we can't take it with us, but we can look at it. It's such a pretty dress. You want to go with me? I was still hesitant, confused. Why was she saying we? Like we were partners in all that had just occurred that afternoon. Is that all right? Her smile faded a bit and a slight frown marred her smooth forehead. I nodded then. 
several little up and down bobs of the head, and we took the turn at the crossroads that would take us to Reader's Mercantile. Becky chatted all the way there, and as she noticed my quiet, she didn't say so. Once we reached the store, we stood together and stared up at the dress, and I remembered to keep my mouth closed. We were both silent with our reverence. It was so beautiful. Mr. Reeder saw us through the window and brought out two licorice sticks. On the house. Just four more quarters, young lady, he said to me, and winked before returning inside. He'll have that in no time, Becky intoned between tongue swipes of her stick. On the way back, I felt myself loosening up, but once back at the crossroads, I was tongue-tied once more. How do you say so long to your first friend? Was she my friend now? Was I dreaming? What would it be like at school tomorrow? I didn't have any answers to my questions, so I turned towards my street. Annie, Becky called out my surname. So many surprises in one day. I waited. You want to come over to my house for a little bit? Play dolls? Dolls? Sure. You still like dolls, don't you? Yeah, I think so. You can have one of mine. I have plenty. Becky's russet-toned skin shimmered in the low-flung sun as she reached out her hand towards mine, and I knew. It didn't matter that my jeans were patched, my tennis shoes scuffed, or that I didn't own a dress yet. Joining Becky on the road to her house, I thought about the pages in the yearbook that would hold my name. Maybe, just maybe, it wasn't that important that I lost that hard-earned coin when, maybe, just maybe, I had earned my first friend. Join us next week because every day brings something new. You've been listening to The Coin the premiere episode of Every Day, a podcast about life and living, storytelling both real and imagined, interspersed with interviews from everyday people about their everyday lives. The Coin was written and produced by me, your host, Darwin Carson. The musical track, Delicious, is by Blue Dot Sessions. As we become more proficient with this format, we will begin posting new episodes weekly. Until then... Thank you for joining every day. We are more than thrilled you found us and hope you spread the word. We will return in two weeks with episode two.